We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints. What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to matchmake your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now. So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say? I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots, and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power, and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soul Fire production. The conversation that follows is from my Sovereignty series, Living Library, where you can find my most provocative discussions and my deepest effort to connect dots from homesteading to relationships to the shape of the earth and the nature of reality. You can purchase the ongoing series at kellybroganmd.com and at the link in show notes. Hi, and welcome back to Reclamation Radio. I am Dr. Kelly Brogan, and I am super jazzed for this episode because I feel like this is a culmination of many, many years of my work and the merger of so many advocacies, including health reclamation, man-woman relating, and Eros. And today I want to talk about childbirth. 
So if you've listened to my first episode, the 25 ways that I have become that which I have judged, you know that one of my greatest credentials is that I have inhabited many different sides of many different dialectic polarities and childbirth and my perspectives on what childbirth is all about. And that includes, you know, pregnancy and postpartum, even conception have moved from antithetical poles over the course of my life experience. So I also recorded an episode on the trap of feminism. If you listen to that, you'll know that I was a card-carrying righteous bitch feminist for many, many years of my life. And when I was in medical school, I was very, very excited, not only about specific injections that were available to support women, but also about, you know, birth control in general. And I thought that if I ever have a baby, which I wasn't particularly interested in for most of my life, I would certainly have an elective C-section because why would you ever needlessly expose yourself to discomfort? Like that's just masochism. And that is probably some form of mental illness, right? So as my journey would have it, I became pregnant in my fellowship year when I was specializing in treating pregnant and postpartum women with psychotropic medication. And because there is a light side to every dark process, I learned through my expertise. I was one of the first 300 reproductive psychiatrists in the world. And this burgeoning field became a necessity because one in four women of reproductive age at the time, it's probably more now, were on antidepressant or psychotropic medications considering or going into or having an unplanned pregnancy. So I actually was trained to read the literature with scrutiny. And because of that training, I was able to develop a comfort with the medical literature and how to read beyond just the abstract and the author's stated conclusions, how to learn what makes for sound scientific methodology, et cetera. And so I actually approached not only my pregnancy, but childbirth through the lens of top tier science, right? And it was through that experience that I came to the conclusion that obstetrics, which actually is a field I had considered going into because of my native feminist impulse, that obstetrics is predicated largely on what's called consensus medicine. So what you will experience as a patient, the kind of treatments and interventions that you will be delivered, no pun intended, are not actually based on the best scientific evidence that's available. They are based on what most people are doing. What is convention? What is the doctor-related consensus around what is acceptable? And this raised a lot of red flags for me because of my interest in studying the literature, which came from a place in me of my kind of shadowy know-it-all part, right? So I said, you know, I'm going to research for myself what is the safest kind of a birth that I could have. And I'm going to research every single intervention because I'm already comfortable researching. Well, <laughs> that led me with my first pregnancy to have a natural birth. And I was literally still eating McDonald's <laughs> at the time. So it's not like I was some like crunchy bohemian woman trying to like commune with her sisters in some orgasmic process of bringing forth life into the world, you know, with the sage burning in the corner. That was absolutely not where I was. And I had a natural birth. 
in a birthing center because I decided based on the available literature that that was actually the safest birth that I could have. And as my story goes, when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis postpartum and was launched into this next chapter of my exploration experience and personal discovery, I came to appreciate that all of the avoidance of interventions that I was engaged in, in the birthing center was really unnecessary if I just changed the setting, right? So I had no interventions. I had a natural birth and there was a vigilance that was required on the part of me and my, the father of my children. And we decided, you know, again, based on the available literature, also based on the culture of holistic health that I was coming into because of my interest in resolving my own autoimmune condition to have a home birth. And I remember when I was in labor at home, staring out the window and feeling this energy move through my body, feeling this intensity move through my body. And I remember feeling connected to every woman who has ever had this experience since the dawn of time and held in that fabric of feminine power. And that was my initiation to myself. The experience of that moment in the liminal space where I looked up at my midwife and I said, you know, how much longer? I don't know if I can do it, right? So the, that ego death and moving just moments deeper into the process to welcome my daughter into the world, into our arms, in my own living room was a reclamation, the order of which I am only now beginning to understand. And that is what I would like to highlight today. Not only why home birth is the natural extension of an investment in one's own health sovereignty, health freedom, and bodily appreciation, but also the implications for birth decisions on the man-woman relationship and even on the erotic future that that couple may enjoy. And I, I just don't know a lot of people having this conversation. So I will be bringing on one of my best girlfriends in the entire world, Ayla Cuenca, who is a birth keeper and one of my most important allies and sisters in this process of self-discovery and this exploration of what it is to be a woman. We also have so much fun together. So I am excited and also like a little nervous to have this conversation with her. It's always funny to talk to my closest, nearest and dearest in this setting. So one other thing I just want to mention before we get started is that there is some reason that this topic is arguably the most controversial of all of the topics I have ever spoken on. Now, if you know me, you know that I am, I am a naughty provocateur. So I enjoy apparently semi-consciously touching on topics that can be quite polarizing. And when I wrote a blog, which I'll link to below on home birth and my perspective on home birth from really this sort of evolved feminist viewpoint, I actually garnered death threats with aerial photos of my home. This was back in 2016. That has not occurred before or since. So there is some reason that this topic is the jugular. And we're going to talk about that today. 
So there was a quote that was part of the incendiary material from that blog, which is, this is why saying no to pharmaceuticals is an act of feminism. Because every time you open that pill bottle, you are saying, nope, you don't got this to your body. And you are instilling a message of oppression by a system that says feeling anything is dangerous. When we know full well, that feeling is where our feminine power lies. So that was the quote that really rubbed a lot of people wrong. And on some level, having been the kind of feminist that would feel affronted by this, I get it. I also know what is at stake. I also spent 10 years in clinical practice working with women who are socioculturally gaslit and personally gaslit, told that because they have a healthy baby, even that though they endured medical trauma during the birth experience, that they should feel well as they are, you know, post-operatively caring for this child by themselves when their husband goes back to work. They should be fine. And if they don't, something is wrong with their brain chemistry. So the stakes are enormous, not only for women, for children, for men, for partnership, but literally for the reorientation around faith, trust, and curiosity when it comes to this human experience and the relaxing of the reflexive fear that would otherwise drive control-based interactions with ourselves. So I'll start us off with a quote. Right. So who knows, right? If these quotes are ever really true, but this is attributed to Dr. Hugh Hodge, who in 1938 reportedly said, if females can be induced to believe that their sufferings will be diminished or shortened and their lives and those of their offspring be safer in the hands of the profession, there will be no further difficulty in establishing the universal practice of obstetrics. All the prejudices of the most ignorant and nervous female, all the innate and acquired feeling of delicacy, so characteristic of the sex, will afford no obstacle to the employment of male practitioners. So in case you did not know or think that medicalized birth is driven by a very strategic agenda, this may be some of the evidence. So I want to explore what is our role today as women, as men. I want to talk about the alchemy of initiation. And I want to talk about the role that childbirth plays in the indoctrination of the population to a system that is predicated on and founded on disempowerment. Welcome woman. <laughs> I gave like a little, a little tea up and also an acknowledgement that is always so funny for me to talk to women that I speak to every day and have intimate relationships with to pretend like we're in this like a professional interview <laughs> space. Like I just have to presence that. And you are the person that I want to have this conversation with of all of the women I have interacted with over my career when it comes to the conversation around birth and advocacies related to that. But the reason you are the person I want to have this particular conversation with is because you and I have been in a deep exploration over the past couple of years into polarity dynamics, man-woman relating, erotic reclamation, and where it is as women that we can take responsibility, get in our lanes, right. and work with men to co-create experiences that we actually want, right? Okay. So like that span of topics from like, you know, the health reclamation, you know, aspects of birth when it comes to, you know, like what a child's microbiota looks like when they're vaginally versus 
surgically born is somehow also related to, you know, what the erotic experience that a couple has in their parenting future. And we can look at it through the lens of what decisions are made when it comes to birth. So you, yeah, I want to, I want to just sort of like orient a little bit because there's so many knowing you the way that I do, there are so many things you could be out in the world speaking on as an expert. I mean, you have deep wisdom, deep knowledge and deep experience in many, many different arenas. And you have chosen to focus your time and energy and to bring your light to the world on this topic of specifically, you know, antepartum, childbirth, postpartum support for not only women, but for couples. And so I'd love for you to just sort of like preface this with why, like why that, why that topic of all of them? Yeah. Well, thank you for that introduction. And I'm so happy to be here with you. It's really an honor, you know, just to be in this glow with you and to be able to talk about this today, because I've been reflecting recently on why I do this, you know, and I've been asked that question a lot. And really when I experienced my own personal deep grief around losing a life. I recognized that every other relationship, every other field that I was participating in had something to do with this grief. Like I saw it all at once. It was this tapestry, right? And so when I experienced that personal loss, I said, oh, this is reflected in my relationship. This is reflected in the way that I eat. This is reflected in my health. This is reflected in my day-to-day routine. And like, how I relate to my family and my parents. And like, you know, it was just this moment of recognizing that when I created something in my womb and when it became lost or it appeared to be lost, everything else came into question. And that's when I saw like, oh, this is where I need to focus my energy. Because if we can, if we can harness this, if we can access the power of this alchemy that happens in the womb, we can then start to unbraid every other area of our life if we want to. And so that's how it all ties in for me. It was pinpointing at this moment of grief that I experienced or this period of grief that I experienced in my own life. And that's where I saw that this was the place I wanted to spend some time. Yeah. So you saw that there is a choice point that then reverberates like throughout all of these dimensions in a woman's life. Absolutely. I imagine you also recognized either at that point or shortly thereafter that it's not just about information and that's why, you know, you and I spend most of our time talking about, you know, woundology and exploring like how it is that we can enter through our, you know, trauma to find the little nuggets of gold inside, but that there, you know, when I first started on this path, I thought, well, here's what the science actually says. And therefore that is what should occur. And sharing science, as we know now is just sort of like a sport. It's not actually a means of inspiring people to make empowering decisions. So I wanted to structure what could be like a whole weekend workshop, this conversation into like three or four specific myths. Yeah. I love me some myth busting. So I wanted to, I wanted to talk about some of the myths when it comes to hospital birth, when it comes to home birth, when it comes to, you know, vaginal birth, even in a hospital versus surgical birth. And what happens when a woman conceives and she recognizes that there are, as you said, these, these choice points, these decisions that she is in a position to make, she recruits others in her life 
to support that decision-making, which is part of what creates also this, this culture of belief in her world, right? And I want to talk about sort of like some of the unseen dimensions of those beliefs. Like what does it imply? What is the subliminal messaging when you make one decision versus another? So I was like digging out some, I don't know, like little stats, right? So, yeah. so if the first myth is that it's safer to give birth in a hospital, that's the sentence. It's safer to give birth in a hospital. Yeah. The implication is, right, like if you give birth at home that you're you're kind of like taking maybe indulgent risks, right? But I want to talk about the fact that like we have gone from birthing 99% of babies at home. Mm-hmm. I pulled out like in 1920, let's say, <laughs> to 99% of babies now born in the hospital. Right. And since 1950. And the section rate in that time has increased by 50% with no improvement in neonatal mortality. So we would look at neonatal mortality if we want to learn about safety because we're thinking, oh, right, right, like a whole and healthy baby is how I know I did good as a woman. Sure. Right? And, a and maternal mortality in the US has actually gone higher. So since the 40s. But do you find, and we'll talk about this, that women are even thinking about that? Right? Like, are they even thinking about their own safety or is it really just this externalized, this like narcissistic extension, right? Like I am a good person if I deliver a safe and healthy baby. So I want to talk about like that. I'll just say it's a misconception, right? Like that misconception that it is safer to give birth in a hospital. So you're making the point for mom and for baby. Like when you counsel people, how do you speak to them about, you know, the actual facts, <laughs> but then also, you know, sort of their fear, which is that they are doing something reckless if they choose otherwise. Okay. So I'll preface this by saying that we will come back. I wanted to like bring this in at the end. I thought that we might, but really it's important maybe to bring it in now that it all comes down to permission field, which we can, <laughs> we can bring back in because what I see here is that a woman has actually afforded herself a very small permission field. And that's where the dynamic with her partner or whoever is participating in the field with her, whether it's her mother or her mother-in-law or whatever it is, there is a deep constriction. There's a power play happening with all of these people. And it's really not about what the mother wants. And it's just like you said, she's really coming in like a sacrificial lamb and saying, well, I'm going to do what's best and what's safest for the baby and what what appeases everybody else who's watching. You know, it's the bottom line, really. And so she'll say, the most common thing I hear is, I contacted you because I really want a natural birth and I'm thinking of home birth, but not for the first one. We'll do it for the second one. Once we can like kind of see what this is all about, you know, I'm like, okay. So, you know, and I'm, I'm taking notes and I'm keeping up and really trying to absorb their experience, but it all is kind of coming down to the same thing, which is I have needs that are not being met. I don't know how to express them. No one's ever invited me to express them. So I'm just going to behave in a way that allows everybody to continue to support me and so that I don't lose love. That's kind of like what is coming through. And then we get into what is existing in the field of myths, you know, and it's like, well, my friend, she had an emergency C-section, you know, and it was in the hospital and thank God she was there, right? Because then they were able to do this. And so then I ask a little bit about the friend, you know, well, what was her experience like? And did she have an epidural? Was she induced? And 99.9% of the time, like I can trace why the C-section happened and why the emergency happened. 
you know, and this is the the trauma field that everyone is just kind of like bouncing around in is in the myths, you know, the sea of myths. Oh, someone's in you know, the baby's umbilical cord is wrapped around the neck. And so what if that happens at a home birth? How could we ever fix that? You know, the baby needs neonatal resuscitation. So when they come to me, it's a matter of like trying to do as much reorganizing of those myths and the myth busting, you know, as I can in like 90 minutes or 60 minutes or 30 minutes. But it really comes down to that. It's just misinformation and like a bunch of people ping-ponging medical facts back and forth statistics, trauma stories getting ping-ponged back and forth, and then this desire to please in order to keep love. That's really like where the women are coming from when they approach me. And so there's a journey we can go on, you know, and we do often go on this journey. And it's really about helping them or guiding them back to their knowing that they are safer where they can express their needs. And so we start to identify where that place is and who's who's there and what does it look like and what does it smell like and what does it feel like? And I mean, we get down to the nitty gritty detailed design to like the more macro experience, you know, and she really starts to paint this picture and it's paired with myth busting. It has to be, you know, because some women feel like they have to be able to quantify this in this more kind of evidence-based scientific realm. You know, they still haven't accessed their woman's logic. They're still functioning in the clinical logic of birth or the legal logic of birth, cultural logic of birth, which now our culture has a very different perception of birth than it did 150 years ago. So she's functioning in those logics. So it's about kind of bringing her back into the woman's logic and the intuitive logic. And it's quite a journey because even the men in this process who really like to see how we get from point A to point B pretty clearly, you know, they don't want the fluff. I start to just show them like, this is the amount of women who end up in C-sections based on pre-existing interventions or, you know, interventions that occurred prior to, to the C-section, right? Induction and epidural being the most common. And they're like, no one's going to get one over me. Like, no way, you know, and they start to understand that they're being duped and men in particular can, can sniff that out. It seems like more easily than women, because there's so much like gaslighting that we do of ourselves as women. So these men are like, no one's doing that to my wife. No one's doing that to me. I'm not paying someone to like, basically apprehend her, accost her and abuse her, which is what they start to see is happening when they get into this field of hospital birth. So the buy-in from them comes pretty quickly, actually. And when the buy-in comes from him, then I see the woman start to feel like she has permission to then (laughs) express what she wants, you know, with confidence and from the heart. And she becomes more at ease. You know, she feels more at ease to say to him, look, you know, now that you see this, why don't we try this? You know, and then we we start to get into dynamics between the two of them. And that's a whole other, you know, field. But when they start to see that home birth is actually safer, that women are not being exposed to the variety of interventions to strangers to an entire field that like, I mean, even if you get into the hospital parking lot, I start to feel it like I'm like, oh, we're walking into this field. Like, I can already see the way people are walking. I can already see the way people are moving, interacting, like we're walking in, you know, and I don't go to hospitals anymore. But I used to sense that I mean, just turning the corner at the light to go into the parking lot, I would start to feel it. And when they start to see that that place is not there for her experience, it's there for quantifiable outcomes, they start to really kind of gain back the inner wisdom that (laughs) I'm safest where I procreated, I'm safest where I made this baby, I'm safest where 
I can, you know, be naked, where I can eat, where I can relax, where I can look into my partner's eyes. I'm safest where I can dance. You know, I'm safest where I can move and express. And that is not here, you know, and it really comes down to that. And, you know, these things that are meant to help us, right? The antibiotics, you know, all of these interventions, they just have to see a few numbers of how this depletes her body, her mental health, the baby's body. And she's often convinced, but no one is showing her that you know, so it's exposure to those realities that start to help her turn over into finding what's right for her. Okay. And so part of the frame shift is to recognize that birth is not a medical illness, right? That, you know, getting the gown on, getting the tubes hooked up, getting your little patient, you know, a number on your sticker, you're right. And your bracelet, (laughs) your bracelet. Oh my gosh. It's so funny. You know, I remember my mentor, Nick Gonzalez saying that the medicine is the last remaining true religion hiding in plain sight because all of the, you know, the language and all of this like cult performativity, I mean, it's so normative culturally normative that we don't see it for what it is, which is that we're treating this natural sacred opportunity as a medical illness. And so when you talk about sort of what sometimes it can take in terms of the intellectual framework to orient around the facts when it comes to the risks of interventions, you know, whether it's like you said, induction, or let's say episiotomy, fetal monitoring section, And couples start to see, oh, okay, well, so I guess it's not so simple that like I either do it the safe way or I honor this, you know, sort of esoteric priority, which is to like have a birth the way it was like, quote unquote, meant to be like that sort of like dichotomy falls away that it's not quite that simple. Right. So if it's like not safer in the hospital necessarily, then why would somebody go to the hospital? And I, the second sort of like myth I want to touch on is like that there's such a thing. I mean, listen, I'm, I like absolutes. I'm a radical, you know, sort of polarity oriented person. So I'm not big into the middle path. Like I'm not big into integrative approaches. And this is what I find. And I'm sure you do too, that often people want to ride the divider. Is that the saying? Whatever they want to sort of like walk down the middle and take the best of both worlds, which is to have their birth plan, like tattooed on their chest, you know, and like walk in there all vigilant and make sure, you know, that these things don't happen, but still enjoy the emergency protocols available, like through a hospital. And I know that, you know, as a doula, you have, I mean, I remember saying to you, like, I just don't know how you do it. You know, like you have a lot of capacity and experience holding space for people who are in that middle space of sort of like best of both worlds, like we're going to try to have the natural birth in the hospital kind of a thing. And so I wonder, you know, like what you think about whether or not there is such a thing, like, is there such a thing? Cause you're talking about the field of this place, the energetic field of this hospital, like, do you enter that field and are you subsumed by it? Or can you sort of like hold your own, you know, have a sovereign experience in the hallowed halls of the, of the cults. Is that possible? The answer is the simple answer is no, there is no middle path when it comes to birth, because when you enter into that field in the hospital, you're entering into a field of meritocracy. It's almost like a video game where you do certain things and then you receive a cookie 
you receive certain treatment from the nurse or from the staff. And if you're a good girl and you accept the IV and you let them give you the fluids and like anoint you or whatever it is, then you're going to get to the next level and they're going to continue to like keep you under their wing. So if you're looking for that comfort, you have to play by the rules. But if you go in there and you're like, here's my birth plan. No, 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 no. You're not touching me there. You're not doing this. I refuse all care. That's like, why are you here? Why are you there? <laughs> yes. and I was like, and so I say to my clients who come, I mean, a lot of women do come to me with that approach. I want a doula and my husband's taking this class and I have my birth plan and no one is touching me or my baby. And then I'm like, okay, why are we going to a hospital? Well, you know, in case anything happens, we just want to be there because what if, and I'm like, what if what, what, like, what are the what ifs? Let's just go to the what ifs first and then let's see if we can get rid of them. And then maybe we'll be, we'll be good and we can move in a different direction. And often these women have no clue what the what ifs even are. It's just an existential fear crisis that they're in probably from, you know, like, again, the the psycho terror of the stories that they exchange with their girlfriends, you know, over a latte. It's like, oh, well, did you know what, you know, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? And it's because of this and thank God, you, you know, so we go back to that whole thing. So if we can access what the real fears are, which when we do, when we start to peel it back, we do this fear inventory, deepest fear inventory around what could really happen. And once we get past that surface layer, we go deeper into the most common one is, I just don't want to feel alone. And so mm-hmm. what's afforded to a woman in the hospital setting is that she believes she'll never feel alone there, right? Mm-hmm. There's these kind of like, you know, maybe matronly type of well, this archetype that can support her in the process. Maybe her mother has been absent. Maybe there's a wound there. And so she's she's searching for that female support. You know, maybe that's one dimension of this. Whereas at home, she might feel like, well, how do I get that? How do I get all these people coming to my rescue? You know, I only ever received love as a child when I was sick. So if I put myself in a situation where I'm, you know, hooked up and tied down and, you know, everybody will will be there and they'll say, what do you need, Sally? You know, and so it's like, there's that to explore. And so, no, I would say it's kind of like your amazing phrase, you know, eggs at the hardware store. Why are we looking for eggs at the hardware store? That's what's happening here. We go in with this plan and we say, well, they're going to change. They're going to listen to me. And it's like, why bother? Just go somewhere where everyone actually does support you. Why do you need to go into a space where you have to prove to yourself that everyone disappoints you? That's another dimension of this, right? Is like the woman who is self-sufficient, who has to do everything herself because everyone else disappoints and they can't hack it, right? The survivor, she goes into the hospital setting where she will be proven right that everyone else is incompetent and insufficient. Right. And that just, you know, corroborates her story. And she ends up in a traumatic birth and says, see, no one could do it. No one could support me. I was right. Here I go again on my own. What's that classic rock song? You know, it's like, here I go again on my own. And so there are so many dimensions of why a woman would choose to get her eggs at the hardware store, have her natural birth at the hospital, right? It's because there's a corroboration of a story that she needs and she's not even aware of that story. So sometimes we can access it and we can reorient. And that kind of takes me into this other this other thing where okay, I don't I'm rejecting hospital birth, so I'm doing a free birth where no one is around, like no one from the system, you know, no midwife is going to be here, no doula is going to be here. It's just me and my husband. This is how it's always been done. And for me, that's the same flavor of being in this mm. high highly medicalized high intervention setting because there's a belief that you can't be supported fully and that you're actually not worthy of support. 
And that energy of rejecting support is just the same other side of the same coin in the hospital setting. And that's why I see so many women transfer from free birth settings into hospitals last minute. They feel totally disappointed and they feel traumatized. Like I did everything I could. I was at home with my husband. We labored naturally. And then like, I still ended up transferring because of X, Y, Z, you know? And I'm like, well, why didn't you have a midwife? Well, because she's part of the system. Like she's captured. She's going to do this. She's going to, you know, do. And I'm like, would she really, or did you just not do sufficient research to find someone who's just there to support you? Because those people exist. Right. And historically, right. women were not birthing alone. <laughs> and they probably weren't birthing with their man either, right? Like when, when in human history would that have occurred versus like women with other women? Women were never birthing with their men. Men were, let's just put a really simple picture in front of us right now. Women were in a hut, let's say, with five other women. And there was always one woman who had the knowledge and the wisdom passed down generationally, who could be known as the medicine woman or, or the midwife, let's say. And she was just there holding space to direct. And then there were the other women who in the village were or in the tribe were supporting her. And the men were outside making sure that provisions were sufficient and protecting the perimeter of the village. Men were never there catching babies, you know, doing like the hip squeezes and all that stuff. We went into that, I would say like 1950s, 1960s, really Dr. Bradley was the one who brought the husband into the delivery room because he saw that women were being systematically abused by hospital staff. And this was the only way to find a gatekeeper that was going to advocate for the woman. So that's really where we got into this, this new idea that, you know, that we see on Instagram, right? It's like the men on the side of the birthing pool with the twinkly lights. And this is the sign of like a really good man, you know, the man who shows up as the birth partner. And in this context, it is, you know, if there are no other options, but this is not the way that it was. So if we're talking about the way that it was and going back to the way birthing should be or used to be, he wouldn't be there. You would be supported by other women in your community, your mother, your sister, the midwife, you know? So there is no middle ground, you know? And there is no birthing at home with a bunch of the accoutrement that women want, right? Like they'll say, I want a midwife, but what does she bring with her? Does she have nitrous oxide? Could she give me a little something for the pain? So there's also that, like (laughs) women wanting to birth at home, but still not really letting go, you know, and not surrendering to this process and having kind of like one foot in the system, like women who will kind of like cheat, I call it, they'll, they'll hire a midwife and then they'll have an OB kind of on call who they go to see from time to time, just so that they can feel that security that like, okay, the midwife is like the cool, you know, natural thing that I'm doing, but I still need the test results. I still need the ultrasound. I still need the man in the coat to tell me that like, this is okay. And that kind of duality creates so much conflict, so much turmoil within the woman's system and in her process, you know, and I've seen labor stall because a woman is like, I don't know, should we go to the hospital? Like, hi, should we call the OB? And the midwife is like, wait a minute, like, we're here at home. Like, what's going on? Like, what do you mean you hired an OB? And then there's like this secret life that comes out, you know? (laughs) So yeah, there is no, there is no middle ground. There's a decision to be made and to commit to yes. wherever it is that you want to be with full honesty, you know, with yourself and with the process, because the goal is to surrender. And we're, when we're in this duality, we're not surrendering to either thing. If we're holding on tightly, you know, with so much control and that presents its own slew of issues when it comes to the actual birthing process. 
It's amazing, you know, to listen to this and recognize what an opportunity for integrity, you know, this represents, right? Because when you are in that inner tension, that inner split, all of that is a part of what you bring to the table and then manifests in these complex, you know, birth experiences where there's actually, you know, these traumas that are induced that seem to have come from the outside. So how can you get clear? How can you decide, you know, do I believe that the body has innate wisdom that this is a part of my, you know, initiatory process to myself as a woman, that there is nothing that I need apart from you know, the allowing of this energy to move through me and the support for me to offer that, you know, to my child, to my own body, you know, is just my own permission field, right? And the permission field that's offered me. Or do I believe that like scary, bad things happen through this thing I call a body and that I need in the victim triangle, right? Like I need a rescuer. I need somebody who knows better than me. I need somebody who can tell me what's going on in my vagina by putting his hands in there, right? Like, And I also need someone to blame in that triangle, right? Yeah. No, I mean, you and I, you know, we talk a lot about and have explored BDSM and the kinks, you know, because the psychological dimensions of BDSM and the way that we have these habits of acting out in our lives, things that we don't yet know we can bring into the bedroom are like, you know, think about like the woman who says like, I don't want any testing, right? Like, I, I don't believe in testing. I don't want GBS testing. I don't want nothing. And then she's working with somebody who's in the system enough where that's actually like a systematized requirement, right? And yet she's going to, in this defiant way, like educate that provider about like why she doesn't want it. Right. And when you're in that culture, when you're choosing to subscribe to a culture that fundamentally does not share your belief system, but you insist that they change in order for you to feel comfortable, you're in a kink, right? Like you're, you're, you're in this thing where you feel these like little hits of power in defiance, right? And yeah, it's fascinating to see how these must play out when we are not yet ready to fully align with what it is that we want. And I think, you know, like how often do you see this? It's like archetypal, right? It's like moving beyond the pale, this fear that if I do this fringe thing, because if it's like 1% of the population is doing this, it's a fringe thing, okay? If I do this fringe thing, and it goes wrong, and I'm exposed in the eyes of those around me for having done a wrong thing that not only involves me, but now also this baby and impacts, you know, my partner, then I will be what exiled, cast aside, burned at the stake. You know, like these are deep archetypal fears that are brought up by, you know, aligning with the less trodden path and risking that it might not look good. Right. But isn't this the nature of the hero or heroine's journey? It's like you take that risk for yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is an opportunity for a woman's initiation and for the man's initiation as well. And I have had multiple clients over the years who will tell their entire family and community they're birthing at a, you know, hospital A with Dr. B. And they're actually doing a home birth and nobody knows. And they're only going to tell everyone they did the home birth if it goes well. But if they transfer it, everyone will just think they were at the hospital all along. Like people do that. A couple will collude with one another and do this plan because there is such a deep fear of being ostracized, not only from their family, but like the community they're in, whether it's a religious community or what have you, you know, they do not want to lose the love again and they don't want to be the outcasts. 
and maybe they have a doctor in the family, like an MD of whatever kind, be it a podiatrist. It doesn't matter. They just don't want that specific person to look down on them and say, look, I told you, see, I told you, you know, you should have listened all along. So there's something there to unpack. There's that, that kink you're talking about where it's even like, I'm going to do this thing behind the scenes. And then there's this desire to prove everybody wrong if it works out. And then there's this desire to keep the love if it doesn't work out. You know, it's like, it's so dimensional. And, you know, you have nine, 10 months to, to figure out if you want to, you know, some people don't start thinking about this until they become pregnant and there's a lot to explore there. Yeah. Amazing to think about the dimensions of this. I want to talk about another myth, which is for whatever reason, which we can unpack at this therapy session, I'm calling an interview, um, which is very triggering for me, which is that like survival is all that matters, right? This is just about the material outcomes, as you said. And even though, you know, the hospital may be itself invested in those outcomes, part of the inversion, right? Part of the gaslight is that exactly what allopathy you know, purports to resolve, it actually perpetuates, right? Like that's the big reveal about like pretty much every pharmaceutical intervention. So like you think you're going to the hospital for a safer birth and guess what? It's not, right? Like you think you're taking the antibiotics just in case you get a kidney infection and guess what? Like now, you know, you have <laughs> renal failure from your- Yeah, no, the business model is, is brilliant. The business model is it is brilliant. amazing. It's, it's amazing. But the material outcomes, right, can be easy to focus on. So when we're talking about what's safer, we can get into this place of like, well, the mom's survival and the baby's survival are what matters. And so you could have all manner of strangers' hands in your vagina. You know, you can have all manner of like, literally like from medical rape to interventions that in any other context would be considered the most barbarous, you know, like episiotomy or all the... I mean, look at a C-section. I mean, just look at the nature of these interventions. So you can have all this happen to you. You could be bullied. You could be coerced. You know, you could be, I don't know, spoken to in all sorts of heinous ways. And if you came out with a baby that has 10 fingers and 10 toes and is breathing on his own, then you should be happy because you have a healthy baby, right? And I guess it's because I, you know, I spent all these years working with women who were gaslit in that way, specific way, and then were diagnosed with so-called postpartum depression because, you know, they, they went through this traumatic experience, were disconnected from the opportunity therein, and then were told something's wrong with them, right? So they put on medications and, you know, the rest is history. What does this represent in your opinion? I mean, you, you've mentioned the word initiation. It's of course the word I love to use also, but like, what do you actually feel is at stake here, right? Like if a woman comes home and she's like, you know, had a surgical birth, let's say, and let's say she wanted a natural birth and went to the hospital and tried to avoid the interventions, but the clock was ticking and they ended up inducing her. And she, you know, went into that domino cascade and ended up on the operating table, but she came home four days later, you know, with her nice clean baby. And she's like, you know, he's healthy and he's, he's so sweet. And so, you know, it wasn't exactly best laid plans. Like it wasn't exactly what I wanted and hoped for, but I guess it's, I guess it's okay. And I mean, what do you feel is lost in that story, right? Like what did she miss out on? Because sometimes I get so hysterical about this <laughs> that I really undermine my ability to convey anything of any import because I just, it's like, how do you even communicate 
Like what was lost there without triggering in people this sense that you're focusing too much on like an experience the mom could have had. Like it's like going to fucking great adventure and like riding on a roller coaster and the line happened to be too long so she didn't go, right? Like as if it's just that or something. Like yeah. how do you articulate it? <laughs> well, I will say that these women, this experience you just illustrated, those women call me like a year later, two years later, five years later. And they're like, I'm ready to talk. (laughs) And there is really, I've learned over the years that there actually is no way for me. There is no entry point there because the gaslight is, it's so severe that I've actually attempted even in a death, right? There was a fatality on mother's day a few years ago where the doctor, for lack of a better way to put it, actually killed the baby. So everything was perfect, perfect, perfect throughout the pregnancy, whatever that means, you know, health wise and labored naturally received nothing in the process, you know, meaning no IV even it was just totally clean, let's say. And the baby's shoulder got hooked on the pubic bone, right? Which happens it's called shoulder dystocia and midwives are typically trained, you know, do live trainings to do this and they're doing it at home births all the time. So they have a lot of experience in resolving this. Whereas, you know, an MD in the hospital really doesn't have these experiences because their solution is to break the baby's clavicle. Their solution is to put the mother into a C-section, you know, just put her under immediately and get the baby out. So they don't actually resolve this mechanically with their hands. They don't know how. And so this doctor got the great idea to suction the baby's head, right? When typically with shoulder dystocia, we would put the mother on all fours and the practitioner would put their hand in over the baby's shoulder and start to be basically corkscrew the baby in one direction and have the mother turning in the other direction. So I've seen women go across a bed and then the baby is being turned the other way, like we're opening a bottle. And so that's typically what we want to do. And that was not done. And so the baby's head was detached from its body in this process and the baby passed away. And so after the fact, the female doctor, which by the way, I have a little riff on like the insanity that is a female obstetrician. But afterwards, she told my client that it was because she's so small. Her body is so petite. She should have planned a C-section from the beginning. Because these things happen, right? These things just happen. So if you know you're a small woman, which you are, you know, you're 5'2 and you're 110 pounds, like you should have planned this from the beginning. We did what we could. And next time I would really recommend just planning a C-section. So this doesn't happen to you again. And so, you know, what could I do with that? I, I went to her house for the postpartum visit and I was like, I was ready to file a suit. I had already talked to attorneys, like not on their behalf, like on my own volition. I was like, I had spent 48 hours researching everything that I could. And they had a case and there were witnesses. And I think there were actually images. So I was ready to help her build a case. And she was so not ready to do that. And she was upset and- Stockholm syndrome, right? Almost asked me to leave. Yeah. She almost asked me to leave her home. And, you know, and she said, you mean, it's not my fault. You mean this could have been prevented. And it's like, yeah, you know, and the entire pregnancy, she was talking about wanting to do this at home because she inherently, she felt something inside of her, not wanting to go to the hospital, but her family was really good friends with this medical practice. They had had worked with a few doctors in that practice of, I think it was eight doctors. And so she just really was going to do it the way everybody else had done it. And then for the second one, she was going to do it her own way. And 
there was no way I could, I could infiltrate that. There was no way we could have a conversation, you know? And so it's not until, you know, months or years later that I do have these conversations with them when they're ready to see that it was not their fault. And they're ready to see that there was some sort of duality at play that they have power over, you know, that they could resolve if they wanted to. But the thing here is, yes, the woman has the power to resolve this. She gives her power to somebody else and then, you know, they fuck up or whatever it is. They they mess up and then they tell her it's her fault. And then she lives with shame and guilt. And she's in this, what you know, the avoidance symptoms of PTSD, where you start to avoid the objects, you start to avoid the situations and the people associated with that event. And, you know, thereafter, women can't become pregnant again, because they're literally avoiding the scene of the crime and the field they participated in. And now they're entering a new dimension of IVF, because they don't want to get pregnant, they haven't resolved the trauma, but they believe that they should be getting pregnant and they they want it as a couple. And so now she's entering a new field where like my body's broken, you know, I don't know what's happening. I had such a traumatic birth before. Now I just want to have another baby and like kind of redeem myself, but I can't get pregnant. I don't know why. It's because I'm old. It's because of I'm not eating well. And so now I need to pay, you know, upwards of 200 grand to get someone's help to get pregnant and do this, you know? And so there's a whole capturing that happens. And I think the opportunity that's lost when we get into these situations of handing over the power is we lose the opportunity to heal what is like coming from, I don't know, the first seven years of life (laughs) where we've slayed that inner girl. We've completely destroyed her for whatever reason, whether it was an inner family dynamic, whether it was cultural, social, we have to slay that inner girl who has needs and who has expressions in order to survive and participate, right? And so when we have this opportunity to birth, we have the opportunity to reclaim her, you know, and to revisit with that part of her that said, oh, I'm going to go offline and protect myself here, but also be be the one behind the wheel, <laughs> right? It's funny how that happens, right? Like yeah. she recedes into the shadows to protect herself, but she's also the one driving and saying, we're going to go into all of these situations now to avoid the pain, but we're actually just creating more pain and we're compounding the event and the drama. So there's a missed opportunity to reclaim that that girl and that part of ourselves that has needs that are worthy of being met, you know, completely. And I would say the same goes for the counterpart, for the male in the situation where he has an initiation opportunity to be a gatekeeper. And to witness his woman as the oracle, you know, and to help guide her and hold the space for her and take action however she needs him to take action. But he doesn't. Often he will just do whatever the doctor says also and, you know, become further compounded into this emasculated state. You know, I see this time and time again. They both had an opportunity and it was missed, you know, but it doesn't mean that it can't happen. It just means that you know, now they're living with this aftermath and let's, sorry, I'm, I'm going into Oh, it's perfect. It's perfect. That's exactly where I want to go. Yeah. Which is into this sort of other big myth that I find myself encountering, just hearing people talk about birth, which is that like, it's only about the mom and baby. So we have this like interesting history, right? So we had, right. Like you and I just talked about how probably this historically ancestrally has been a women's event right? And men are holding it down and making sure that the women in the alchemical space of the childbirth you know, process are not concerning themselves with whether or not somebody's coming to like, you know, 
assault them or whatever, right? Like they're not on in survival duty, right? That the men are sort of like guarding the palace, so to speak. And now, interestingly, the system and the establishment of the system has created this new opportunity for men and women to join together because we don't live in these kinds of, you know, sort of more tribal configurations. We don't have the kind of sisterhood, you know, woven quilt, you know, that we need. And what we do have often is the dyad, right? So we have the dyad. And interestingly, the system is offering an opportunity because there's nothing that's all bad for men and women to come back into proper polarity, right? To come back into the kind of dynamic we were designed for, where our power actually thrives. And even though I totally agree that men are not designed to catch babies, like somehow we find ourselves in this place where men have a very specific role. So if if the final myth I want to explore is like, this isn't just about mom and baby, then like, what is the role of a man in this dynamic, whether it is in the decision-making around childbirth or whether it's in the actual childbirth experience. And, you know, we're in a bit of a mess because like you said, men don't understand their role. Women don't understand men's role. And the system certainly doesn't make it easy for either of them to step into their role and nor should it because it's not designed for that. Right. It's like that saying, it's like, it's not broken. Like it was built this way. Right. It was like made this way. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the, (laughs) it was totally designed this way. And what I see is that the system itself is actually occupying both role of the man and the woman in this birth field. So how can either one know what to do or where to go, even within their own relationship, when they, you know, offer themselves to the system who's saying like, I'm not only making decisions for you, but I'm also taking the action around the decisions. And all you have to do is just give us your bodies and your money, right? Surrender to the system. I mean, you and I talk about how the, the, again, through the BDSM lens, like the system is like a bad dom. I mean, it is really holding that authoritative role without the heart connection, without the investment, without the attunement. And so what happens is like, you have these women who are not properly contained, right? And they're in this vigilant state of mentation. So when we're thinking and vigilant around like, what is the next intervention? What's going to happen? Because we are not contained. We can't go into subspace. We can't channel God. We can't go inward. We can't really attune to our own process of, you know, this initiation and where the man is just like excised, right? It's like almost the woman in dynamic with this really, really unhealthy power struggle. Yeah, he is excised. He kind of goes off to the side throughout the process. And the woman is now in a hypervigilant state, which is another reason that women's births unfold into this really traumatic final result is because they've been in a hypervigilant state. So the body is like, are we birthing? Or are we not birthing? What are we doing here? I'm so confused, you know? And this is where we get things we we didn't ask for, we didn't want, or we get the transfers from the home births because this can happen at a home birth when there isn't proper polarity as well. It's not like every midwife is angelic in the sense that she's holding the right type of space and there is proper polarity between the couple. I would say it's more often than not simply because to get to the place of having an out-of-hospital birth, there has to be some type of healthy communication between the woman and the man. And there has to be some sense of polarity where he says, you know, she knows best for her body and I'm here to support her, you know, on a basic level, that's kind of what we get. You know, very rarely is the woman proceeding forward with a home birth and the husband is like digging his heels and saying, no, I didn't want this. Like he's usually on board. So there is a balance that is restored there. And so, yeah, in these relationship dynamics, like 
I would say, and I've been you know, telling my clients to explore this, this dominant and submissive dynamic, and just to see what comes up for them as a couple when they look at tapping into those roles. You know, what comes up when you let him, you know, when you ask for a certain type of massage and you give him the conditions for massaging your hand, what does he do with that information and how does he hold that space for you? So I give them very basic exercises where the woman has an opportunity to be very clear about what doesn't feel good and what does feel good. And then he has the opportunity to deliver and to create that beautiful containment sandwich, right? Where he will look at her, ground her and practice that, penetrate her by giving her just this touch that she's been specific about, and then closing that out and giving her the containment, letting her know the space is closed, right? So we do very basic exercises like that, and they get a taste of the possibility that exists in their pregnancy, in their birth, and even in their parenting journey, and even like in the erotic dimension of their relationship. And some women have broken down in tears when doing this hand massage that comes from Betty Martin's work, because they say, no one's ever actually asked me how I want my hand touched. (laughs) He's never asked me. He didn't even know that he could ask me. We've never slowed down this much. And just having that awareness is like, you know, for them. And so when we get into this field of birth and how we can restore this polarity, the man is there to... I would say experience what she is expressing and ask her, you know, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And as she starts to tell him more about what she wants, what she, what her, you know, speaking from the heart, her fears about this process and her desires about this process, he can figure out how to take action to find a solution. Okay. She's having a lot of trepidation about this. Let's find her a a birth class, you know? Oh, she's wanting this. Let's go meet with three midwives, you know? All right, babe find the three midwives that you want to talk to and I'll go with you. You know, like that's what it is. But I do see that a lot of men are like, there's no way we're going to the hospital. Like, that's it. Like we're not putting our baby in danger. And so the first step there would be for them to get some hard facts about where they're being duped. And then they can start to say, oh, I'm I'm open to the possibility that she might know more about her body because I'm seeing that the system is really here to just pull one over on us. So there's a, there's a lot that has to get uncovered as we're trying to restore this polarity between the two of them. And I see a lot of couples go through this arc where he sees that he's not interested in being dominated by the medical system. He's interested in leading and he has the opportunity to do that. She's interested in being led and she has the opportunity to do that here. And then they start to walk step by step. And they find practitioners or they go into a free birth setting or, you know, whatever it is, they start to find what feels good to them as a couple and where he can shine and she can shine. And ultimately, the goal is getting into that dom subspace. And I would say that he can hold that dom space by creating a container. But really, the woman is getting into a dom subspace with the act of birth with mm. with the unfolding of the birth process yeah. that's her dom <laughs> you know and, it's like holofractal yeah yes yeah and so he needs to be aware of that too that it's almost like she is surrendering to a hierarchy where he's mm. participating as the dom but she's also surrendering to something greater than both of them and that's what makes a good dom right is that he knows he is not at the top there is only wow a greater omnipresence above everyone else. But that's exactly where the system steps in. I mean, that's exactly it, what you just articulated. That's why this is such the coup, you know, is because the system becomes almost that, 
right? Because higher in the hierarchy than a man, than a dom is God, <laughs> right? And, and like you're saying, it's so true, right? So the woman is in submission, not to her man in that moment, that yes, he's holding space and providing containment, but the act is not between her and the man. And that's why historically he probably wasn't even involved. And do you right? see how he actually just goes back to space holding, manning the perimeter, so to speak? Yes, it's yes. It's not that yes. she's actually submitting to him and looking into his eyes, receiving his gaze. The woman is receiving the gaze of the omnipresence that is the unfolding of this natural process. And she has to be okay with whatever it is. She said her piece. This is what I want. These are the conditions. I've said my prayer, you know, if you want to put it that way. And I trust you to do the rest. Right. That's the unfolding of the birth process. But as we know, the system has stepped in as God, right? Like this is what we have, the church of science. You know, we have that religion there because they know that, okay, like this is where I can step in in the hierarchy and I can remove God from the process and I can be God here, you know, they'll all follow, they'll all come in because they're all looking for the hierarchy. I mean, we all are. Right. So like when a man is interested, right, he's a good man, right. And he wants to support his woman. And she says, we're going to have a baby in the hospital. Here's what I want and don't want, like help me maintain vigilance. And maybe she even has a doula, you know, like you to support her and they end up in the hospital. I just wonder how many men are looking through this lens of guarding their own masculinity, their own role to see what it actually means for them to participate in this triangle with the system itself, that it's imperative that they be emasculated, that they be stripped of any particular role, that they be excised, right? And that's what happens when a woman's body is given over to this system. Let's say her son is born and he's circumcised, right? And vaccinated or whatever then the baby's body is given over to the system and the man is there helpless, right? Or maybe he tries to pipe up a little bit and he's like steamrolled because that's not protocol. The emasculation is like the enduring imprint of that for not only that man, but that couple is something I just don't hear many people talking about who are talking about what it means to have a medical birth and have your child indoctrinated into a system that is predicated on the belief that you don't know best about your own body and you don't own your own body. Okay, fine. But like what happens to that couple when a man has not fulfilled his role, didn't even have a chance to do so, didn't, there was a prayer, you know, that he could possibly play the man role in dynamic with a woman in the face of, you know, this higher power, what actually happens to that couple? Like what else is at stake and why would that be something other than, or something beyond just like a shitty experience, right? Like why is it yeah. potentially a bigger deal than, than many people are thinking about? Well, let's just look at the two possibilities of why a man would get to this point of being in such an emasculated state, Right. When it comes to the birth, the giving up of his wife to another man's hands, the giving up of his baby to other people, there's two archetypes. And we'll just talk about these two. One is the boy that comes from the dark mother, where he messes up until he's punished and then he's redirected, right? And so he, this man, now he's grown up and he's at his wife's birth. He's waiting for someone to tell him what to do, you know? And 
most likely he's with a woman who does that. <laughs> I've been in session with couples where she's like, oh, he doesn't know I'm a birthing goddess and I've done so much work and research and I've been doing this breath work and I here and there. And, you know, he's just kind of like skittish about it. And so already she's emasculating him day to day. And that's, you know, a greater <laughs> dynamic at play. And so I see that come through in the birth space. And so he doesn't stand a chance in the hospital setting. And then I see the other type of man who already was worshiping the system and was already worshiping science as his God. And so it doesn't matter <laughs> what his wife wants or what the baby should be getting, like what is more humane, right? It's about what is safest and what does the church want, you know, the church of science want us to do because there's a dogma there and we have to follow it, right? We have to follow the routine vaccinations. We have to follow the circumcision because if we don't, then he's going to be, you know, he's going to be rife with chronic infection for the rest of his life and whatever the, you know, we're doing everything that the system's telling us to do. So honey, you need to submit to this. You need to submit to my God because he doesn't really believe that they are creating their own eros, that what they create together becomes their God. He doesn't understand that. So those are the two types that I most often see. And what happens postpartum, once the baby is born and the woman is in this like, you know, <laughs> glossed over state where she's like, I have a healthy baby and I'm alive and like, we're good. <laughs> you know, like everyone's telling me I should get over it. You know, even NIH says that within one to six months, a person should be done with their trauma. <laughs> and so she's like, everyone's telling me I need to get over it. It's been a year. It's been, a, you know, 10 months, whatever it is. And I should be grateful. Why don't I feel grateful? Why don't I feel connected? Why don't I want to have sex with my husband? Why don't I want to see anybody? You know, what's wrong with me? And, and all this shame comes through. And what I start to see is women don't recognize it consciously, but what is screaming just underneath the surface is he didn't show up for me. He didn't protect me. He let these other people, you know, men included, violate and defile my body, really. You know, they cut me open whether it was my abdomen or whether it was my perineum, whatever, you know, they injected me with this. They took our baby there. Like he didn't show up. What was he doing? I mean, I've seen men watching Netflix on the couch in the hospital while their woman is laboring, you know, <laughs> it's like, what was he doing? And the resentment builds and he doesn't know what's going on. He showed up. He was just, he was at the birth. He stayed, he slept on the couch. He was so uncomfortable. He slept on the little chair overnight. He suffered too. So, you know, what's the problem, honey? You know, oh, I know what the problem is. It's this baby. You're breastfeeding all the time. You're exhausted. You know, you need to go back to work and get out. You should start going to Pilates again. It's because you're doing all this baby stuff. You're overwhelmed. No, could it be that you didn't show up in the way that you were supposed to, or you could have, you could have shown up differently. And that's why she feels completely uncontained. She feels scared. And now we're blaming the baby and the, the shackles that are motherhood and parenthood, you know? And so we redirect the focus. We find someone to blame. We make them, we make the baby wrong. We make early parenting wrong in order for us to feel right where we were deficient, you know? I think of that phrase that, you know, our teacher Om Rapani says that women are flailing and men are failing. Right. And that is why Eros is in its death throes for us as a species. Right. And because you're, you're implying that all of these dynamic conflicts and misattributions could emerge, but also that the erotic dynamic is at stake in that moment. Like 
most people I imagine would not connect those dots, right? Like what does my future erotic potential with my partner have to do with how I show up to childbirth that I thought the only thing that matters is a healthy baby. Like what do those have to do with each other? And you're describing that, right? That when he is not aware, which is obviously why we're having this conversation to do our part, you know, to bring awareness when he's not aware that that's actually even part of the opportunity is for him to show up in a certain way for his woman, then when she has this experience that they didn't even know they were consenting to on this level, the rupture that endures could be on the deep erotic level. She may even seek out other sexual partners because she can no longer find that kind of fulfillment in him, with him, through him. And meanwhile, he has like no idea what he even participated in. He thought, like you said, he was just doing his best, right? He was, yeah, he was. And most men say in the pregnancy, just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. You know, and most women don't even know what needs to be done because they haven't even asked themselves what they want, you know? So it's like, we haven't even, (laughs) we have to start there. Right. And what I see happen is that women end up fantasizing about another type of life after the birth, right? Another type of partner. And the other dimension of that is that when a woman experiences sexual violation, which is what the body registers the birth as because there were multiple hands inside of her. There were, you know, even if she didn't feel the episiotomy because she was numbed with lidocaine, the body felt the episiotomy, the body was violated. So she's in a post-sexual trauma state. And that in of itself creates conditions for her to not even want penetration energetically or physically from anyone again, (laughs) you know, and she's not even aware of that because she has a healthy baby and she's alive. What more could she want, right? Is what people lead her to believe. You got everything you wanted. Yes, it didn't go that way, but look, you're fine. What do you mean sexual trauma? You weren't raped. You know, that's what people say to these women. I've heard, I mean, I've even heard certain doulas talk this way where it's just like, what do you mean? She wasn't violated. Like they did everything they could to get the baby out. They had to do that to her. And I'm like, they only had to do that because she was there in the first place. It's all designed this way. And if we can dismantle the dynamic between the Eros, between the man and the woman, you know, they're not united, right? They lose their unity, which means they lose their power, which means they're more susceptible to the greater manipulation. That is this, you know, this system that we're playing in every day. Exactly. You know, I feel for men because I haven't often thought of their perspective. Obviously, as a practitioner who's only ever worked with women, I've just like not really considered how it is that they really shouldn't know much. Like you said, like, oh, tell me what to do. Of course, that's kind of makes sense. It's not really their role to guide and direct and lead in the birth process. Yet somehow we've created these conditions where their role is specifically to guard that space. And so I want to ask one final question, which actually I'm just like curious how you're thinking about this, because we've talked about so much of this that I just love this conversation so rich and deep. And like, if it is a woman's responsibility to align with her own feminine power and to do whatever, you know, sort of resolving of cognitive dissonance is necessary for her to understand that having a natural birth is her initiation to her own wildness, to herself, then she tells her man that. And it's his job to make sure that shit goes down no matter what, right? But what happens if she is not fully awakened to that and he is? Like, I didn't normally see that dynamic, right? So what happens if if he knows how his son should come into the world and she is scared and wants to have a hospital birth? Do you think that's 
symptomatic of the dynamic where fundamentally she doesn't already feel safe with him and trust him. And that's why, you know, she's not going to take his lead to say, you know, it's probably best that we have this baby at home. Or is there something that can be alchemized in that space where when the man knows better, so to speak, he can guide and lead in this arena, which normally I think historically has probably never been a man's role. It's like, wow, we've created some very interesting scenarios as humans. We've here. created some very interesting <laughs> scenarios. We've like, I mean, we've created a lot of scenarios that set people up for like severe failure. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. And so in this situation, we have to define safety, right? Because I do believe that this is symptomatic of the relationship prior to the pregnancy. However, if we're looking at safety and he says, you're safer and the baby is safer, we're safer as a family outside of the hospital. Like I need you to see this or I would like you to see this, she doesn't trust him inherently. Like it's revealed that she doesn't trust him. You know, when he's saying this is about safety, she doesn't trust that he might know something. And, you know, just to even humor him and go to the class or do the research, if she's resistant to that, she just doesn't trust the guy. And that's a whole other thing. If she knows in her body, right? Like, Okay, because she's choosing the hospital because there is fear around surrendering. There is fear around this process. She doesn't trust this process. And then there's a woman who wants to birth at home because she trusts this process and she knows that she's safer there. And the husband is the one with the resistance and he's having fear and he's worshiping this church of science, right? Like he's not trusting that she knows what is safest in that direction either. And it's not about submitting to her. It's about creating the conditions for her to surrender and be in safety. So everyone has to get on the same page about safety. And people who believe the hospital is safer, I'm sorry, but they are actually functioning from a place of deep fear and ignorance because they don't actually know what's going on. They don't actually know that it's the lion's den. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, so if we can really get on the same page about what safety is, there will be that man who always, who knows, I've, I've gotten clients like that, you know, where he'll say like, I've tried to show her, but she doesn't even want to look like she doesn't even want to turn her head in that direction for just a few moments to see that like there's side effects from the epidural. Like she could have nerve damage. Like, I just want her to know that like, she could just try this without the drugs, like sending her numbers and stats on fentanyl. And like, she's just not seeing it. And you know, there's something there where Gosh, it's so convoluted, but I really do think that there's an opportunity here for the woman and the man to explore their dom-sub dynamic. And sometimes the woman can assume this dominant role. It's not always about the man being the dom. There are scenarios where the woman is actually more wise and inclined to lead the way as someone who's intuitive and who is the oracle, you know, and who can see a little bit beyond what he can see in his more myopic, really clear vision. You know, she has this more radial view of possibilities sometimes. And so if he can say, I trust you in this scenario, I trust that you know what's best for our family. How can I help you get there? Like that's where the dance is because we're on the sliding scale of polarity. It's not about being fixed in the two poles all the time. Although I do believe that the man is more inclined to be in one of the poles more often because of his biology. There are opportunities for him to, for them to slide and to go like this. And for him to say, I see that, you know, what's best for us. And I'm just going to help you get there, you know, and some men can take the call and answer the call and and some some don't, you know? Right. So you are in the trenches of 
feminine initiation. It's like literally what you do for a living is, you know, guide women through this liminal space and into contact, you know, with their own power. And it's probably no small part in why you are on my speed dial (laughs) as a girlfriend, because you have such a powerful energy that you bring to bear when it comes to just like embracing raw human experience, you know? And I wonder what you think it's going to take for us to reclaim this initiatory right for women. I think it's really the only one we were ever given that was built in. And, you know, of course I've seen it and you have through other, you know, through divorce and through coming off of antidepressants. And of course there are many other crises that can catapult you into contact with your soul and call you to your path as a, you know, a birthkeeper, like, what do you think in the last minute that we have together, what do you think it's going to take, you know, to, to reclaim this? What's it going to take? It's going to take that woman going back to the little girl who is fit for the initiation until she's reclaimed and brought forth. She will go through the motions of the initiation, but it won't actually happen until that little girl is reclaimed. Does that make sense? Like we need to bring her back online and she needs to be part of the process. And I have seen women go through a birth completely disembodied, going through the motions, ready to initiate for the next one, ready to bring that little girl back online, reclaim her, you know, grab her by the hand and say, we're doing this together. What do you need? And it's when that little girl can express that, that she can go through this process and have her needs met. Right. So it's bringing the vulnerability, bringing the fear, bringing the needs into the space, not powering over and imagining that this is just like some sort of, you know, triathlon, you know, that is going to be achieved. Exactly. And, and this little girl has to know that it's safe to trust other people. She has to know that it's safe to trust the world, right? And that her intuition is going to guide her to where that is. But that's completely suppressed. And so once she can be told that, you know, and that that comes with this woman saying, I got you, right? Like, you're safe and you can trust because I'm here and I'm only going to make decisions that benefit your needs. Once that is online, then she can go through this initiation and she actually won't fear birth. And I've seen it happen, (laughs) you know. Because she is surrendering to the unknown. And that's all the, the fear that comes with this initiation is what's on the other side. Always. every No one's ever caught me when I've gone to the other side. So who's going to catch me then? You know, that's what this is. And that's why we, we suppress with all of the interventions and with this web of, you know, purported support <laughs> is because we're just trying to soften the blow of the fall that we think is coming. But really, there is no fall at the other side. Because it's a benevolent universe. And I just think this is one of the most important topics because it connects all. I mean, look at where we've spanned, right? From, you know, Eros and sexual dynamics, inner child work to shadow work, you know, to the basics of health reclamation and, you know, sovereignty. This is at the crux. And I feel safer in the world because you are speaking to this, like you personally. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I like got so much out of this conversation. And I literally have been talking to you all morning and we'll probably talk to you in 10 minutes. <laughs> I was like, wow, we should have just like gone to lunch and had this conversation. It's important, right? Like even for us to focus our energy on it and try to 
as you say, like unbraid so many of the elements here because there's beautiful complexity represented in this crisis that we are all in the midst of men, women, children, you know, our population. This is a big alchemical opportunity for us. And so I'm so grateful to you. I love you, woman. And I, love you too. I will talk to you soon. Sounds good. <laughs>